Hello, and welcome to the Product Momentum Podcast. This is a podcast intended to entertain, educate, celebrate, and give a little back to the product leadership community. Hey folks, before we get started today, just wanted to introduce a special guest interviewer sitting in for Sean Flaherty is Zach Kane. Zach and I have been working together for years, and I'm really excited to jump into this conversation with you, Kai. Thanks, Paul. Happy to be here. Was really fascinated by our discussion with you, Kai, and I'm looking forward to sharing it with everyone. Hello and welcome to Product Momentum. Today we are really excited to be joined by Yukai Chow. Yukai is an author and international keynote speaker on gamification and behavioral design. He's the original creator of the Octalysis framework and the author of Actionable Gamification Beyond Points, Badges, and Leaderboards. He's currently president of the Octalysis Group and the founder of Octalysis Prime, a gamified mentorship program. Yukai has been a regular speaker and lecturer on gamification and motivation worldwide, including at organizations like Google, Stanford, Lego, Tesla, TEDx, Boston Consulting Group, and even many governments. His work has affected over 1 billion users' experiences around the world. Yukai, so happy to have you today. Welcome to the pod. Pleasure to be here. Absolutely. So I've read your book actually uh, a couple times. And I'm really uh, interested to get your take on a couple developments in the past decade. It's been almost 10 years since the book originally came out. You know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. But one of the things that's in the current lexicon lately is this thing called the metaverse. So I thought it might be interesting to start there as sort of the newest sort of bleeding edge topic on technologists' mind. Where are you at on the topic? What are you thinking about where we're going with this thing? And what's the possibilities that it brings to us? Yeah, I'll first qualify a bit about my background in the metaverse because the metaverse is actually very interesting to me because it's an overlap of where all my past interests and passions align. As many know, I've started working on gamification since 2003. So that's why I'm most known for being the gamification pioneer. But in 2005, my first start was actually a virtual world company. It was aiming to be the second life plus LinkedIn. So a virtual world that made this life more productive and better. And later on, I also worked with the co-founder of Ethereum, Anthony Diorio, working on the central. I was the chief experience officer for a while, and I helped design blockchain experience. So that was my entrance into the blockchain world and crypto. Later, I was the head of creative labs and digital commerce for HTC. So I did a lot of VR stuff for Vive. And recently, I started my own NFT company on Metablock. So there's a lot of things that are just coming together. And so... When it comes down to the metaverse, and I think like many people talk about it, it's very unclear what the metaverse means, right? It's like the buzzwords that's thrown around. And it really depends on who you talk to. And they'll give you a different definition. If you talk to a VR company, they'll tell you that, hey, the metaverse is a virtual world where you can experience in VR, like Ready Player One. But if you talk to uh, 3D virtual worlds that are not VR, but they're gaming companies like Fortnite, they'll probably say that the metaverse is like 3D worlds where you can explore and experience it, but it doesn't have to be VR. And if you talk to you know, NFT companies, they'll probably say the metaverse is this persistent sense of identity and ownership that can go between world and world. And you know, in Chinese Proverbs, there's a concept of blind people filling out an elephant, which is, you know, if you feel the trunk, the blind person, oh, the elephant is like a snake and you feel the stomach, it's like a wall. If you feel like the elephant is like a pillar, but it actually, the elephant is everything combined together. So I think a lot of people are just kind of feeling out what it is, but they usually evolve around these things of this world that people can explore and has this persistence 
in your identity, in your ownership, which means that if you get an item in this game, you get achievement in this game, you can go to, let's say the meta metaverse and use it there if the rules allow it. And then you can take it to the real world. This is what I'm most passionate about through AR glasses. And let's say smartwatches, you can take your achievements or your angel wings into a bar and they'll see, wow, you have these angel wings from this game. You're a VIP coming for free. All these things come together, I think is what's going to be the metaverse. I love that. The proverb of the elephant is apt, very wise application. I think the way that we're looking at it right now, the loudest players often get the center stage, but there's a lot of passionate people who've been thinking about this for a long time. And as you said, it's all kind of culminating in this consolidation and we really don't know where it's going to go. So it's, I think they're really helpful centering of where we're at in this new technology. So gamification is obviously, or human-centered design, as you put it, is really the focus, the passion of your life's work. I know from reading your book that you hate starting talks with definitions and starting with semantics is, you know, people can go read your book if they want to learn about the definition. But for the sake of our listeners who've never been introduced to your work before, can you help us understand sort of where gamification fits or human-centered design fits in the product space for digital products specifically for people who are building digital experiences? Yeah, and I don't particularly hate starting off talking about definitions. What I kind of dislike is people arguing, debating days over days about definitions. Fair enough. You know, the spirit is the same, but they just want to nitpick on the words and say, oh, it's this, it's not that. And I think that's not productive because I'm most interested in creating value, right? And so I like to go to the core of things to gamify something is to make it more game-like to make it more like a game, right? That's just using the root word of it. Now, this is where the confusion begins because what does it mean to make something more like a game? Does it need animation? Does it need bad guys? Does it need power-ups, right? And in my world, I really don't care that much. I think that as long as you're able to apply what we learn from games to make real-life productive things more useful and more enjoyable, then that's fine. And in my world, I actually have a spectrum in terms of explicit gamification versus implicit gamification. So explicit gamification is that it actually looks and feels like a game. You can opt in and there's some oftentimes is like avatar characters you play with. And then there's the implicit gamification design where, you know, the best designs are kind of invisible. It's like a doorknob. You don't really pay attention to the doorknob. You just use it to open the door. And if I ask you what color the doorknob was, you might say, oh, you know, was there a doorknob? I'm, I'm sure there was because I opened the door, right? But I don't know what color it is. And so it just has these emotional triggers that make us feel appreciated, make us feel accomplished. So if you go to LinkedIn, LinkedIn has a ton of gamified elements in it. Even Amazon has that, but most people don't go into it and feel like, wow, they're trying to make me play a game. I don't want to play a game. Whereas in the middle ground, right, there's some like ways, navigation app, navigation app, you don't play a game in it, but it feels like a game. There's these avatars, the characters, they're all round bubbly buttons. You can send like social signals. You can go capture candy. It's more game-like, but it's not full out playing a game. You're actually just doing what you would do with any navigation app, which is just traveling on a map. And then there are apps where we design where it looks fully like an app. For instance, we designed a loyalty program for a Porsche, a Boneo. And the first thing you do, you need to own a Porsche to have this app. But after that, you actually have futuristic cars, avatars. Based on how you drive your Porsche, your avatar can upgrade its skins. Based on if you're driving with other Porsche drivers, it can look cooler and you get 
group bonuses. So now you're trying to strategize how to level up in this Porsche loyalty program and, and get benefits from that. So I kind of follow that spectrum about, hey, is it explicit or implicit? And what you do depends on your target audience, right? Some people, they see something that's like a game, like I'm turned off. I don't want to see a game. Some people, and lights them up. It's like, wow, this looks so much fun. And then there's everything in between. So when it comes down to the core of things, you know, we mentioned that in my book, I talk about the concept of human focused design as opposed to function focused design. So most systems are function focused. It assumes that people in the system will create the desired behavior and they'll do the actions. And then they just kind of optimize for efficiency, for usability. And so it's a little bit like a factory where you assume people do the work because you pay them. And then you just make sure you maximize your production efficiency. So this is what a lot of product development looks like, right? You build the functions, the features, and it says, it all works great. Now we launch it. Whereas human-focused design remembers that people just have feelings, that have motivations, insecurities. There's a reason why they do or do not want to do something. And it optimizes for that. So it's a bit more like a theme park where you're designed to be really fun. And then people automatically want to line up for hours and hours just to enjoy that experience. My favorite example of function-focused design is Google+. Plus. You know, Google actually spent a tremendous amount of engineering resources and money building Google+. Plus. And at the time, everything kind of tricked you to go to Google+. Plus. You know, Gmail tricked you there. YouTube tricked you there. It wasn't just a little Google lab experiment. They really rolled it out. They said, this is meant to be the product that connects all Google products into a social profile, right? So because they saw Facebook rising. So supposedly this is the best technology that Google could offer, which arguably meant that, you know, this is the, one of the best technologies in the world. But a lot of people remember when they go to Google Plus at the time, they're like, oh, I don't get it. And they leave. And I remember I had lots of friends who worked at Google at the time and it told me at Google, there's a joke. If you want to host a secret party, you share on Google Plus, you know? So again, just because you have good technology, you have good functionality, does not mean that people will want to use it, right? There's motivation engagement. This is what gamification is all about. Making sure it's not just something that works. It's something that makes us motivated to do things. That's really interesting. I was going to ask a little bit about sort of this mismatch of, you know, when has something been rolled out and, you know, all signs pointed to, yes, this is going to be a hit and it didn't, but I think you kind of touched on it. I think most people will be able to remember back however long ago that was to how little they used it. You did say something though, that kind of struck a chord for me that I wanted to pull at. So I love the idea of explicit and implicit gamification. I've benefited from, you know, some very implicit gamification in the past to, you know, change some healthy habits. I am curious though, for those folks that do sort of fall into that bucket of, oh, this looks like a game. I don't want to get involved in it. How do you kind of approach changing that motivation other than just making it more implicit gamification, if that makes sense? So first of all, this group is less than what people expect. So a lot of people think, oh, others will be turned off, but it's not necessarily the case. So I remember back in the day, we had a project which is about gamifying SEC compliance training for financial firms. So something that sounds incredibly boring. It's like thousands of pages long, keeps changing. These financial professionals, they don't want to do it. And so this is a start of us creating a mobile training experience for this. And the hiring manager, when we talked to them, they said, yeah, yeah, we want to do gamification, but it can't be, you know, cute looking. All the characters in it need to be, you know, normal human size, because again, these are CFAs we're talking about. And the moment they see like cute characters, they're going to be turned off and they don't want to do it. So we're like, yeah, sure. Of course we listen to what the client wants, but then of course we always want to test. And so we went to talk to the actual target audience, the financial professionals, and we showed them a variety of different art styles. And it ended up everyone pointed to the cute, like Farmville type <laughs> characters and said, yeah, I would use this more if my training had this. 
And I think even today, like let's say if Waze does not exist and we were hired by a navigation company and we designed Waze, I think a lot of them will still feel like, no, 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 we're like a professional company. We need to just look reliable, right? Because we're navigation. We can't have any kind of cute things, smiley faces, bubbly buttons. People will stop taking us seriously. So I think if we design Waze for a company, I think they would not accept it because it looks too gameful. Whereas of course, Waze came out and within like five, six years, they sold for a billion dollars to Google. So pretty successful. Yeah, so I think... That's the first step. It's a lot less people are turned off compared to what people expect. But let's say they are turned off, right? There's a few things that are important to recognize. One is that social norming. Because this company might talk about my octalysis framework that I'm most known for, but it breaks down all human motivation to eight core drives. And so when people see something new, that's core drive seven, unpredictability and curiosity. And that means that when they see something new, if they associate to a game, which is core drive for ownership possession, it magnifies the excitement. Like, yay, maybe I'll win money. It's so cool. It's very excited. But if they associate to a loss, then they might lose money. Then it also magnifies the fear. Like, oh, there's a chance I'll get in, put in a very bad situation. It paralyzes people. So in an environment uncertainty, it could be delightful, exciting, or it could be scary. And so what really solves that is core drive five, social influence related, social norm, social proof. People like me are doing it, safety in numbers. I see a lot of good testimonials, good reviews. That makes me feel safe. So one example is we did design a program to motivate salespeople to go door to door and sell to retail stores. And this is for Procter & Gamble in Eastern Europe. And so we designed a explicit game fight app where it's called, uh, I think it's Adventures of the Endless Sea, where everyone has a, on their mobile phone, they're like the 17th century trader. They have a sail ship and they're sailing the world. So when they drive to a place, it's like their ship sails to the place and they have a town. The town is everyone's town and they have you know the town's health and gold. So if they do KPI activities, the health goes up. And if they don't do it, it drops down. And if they close deals, the gold goes up so they can upgrade their towns. So at the beginning, there's some people who jumped on it. They love to use it. And then there's people saying, yeah, this looks really like what kids are doing. I don't want to do it. But then over time, a month, two months later, the people who didn't want to just see like, wow, everyone who's playing it becomes so excited, but they talk about it all day long. So they started signing up because they see other people doing it. And eventually we had a what 99.7% adoption rate. And the only person who didn't really use it was a woman who was on pregnancy leave. So we actually got pretty much everyone could actually one person, he had to call sick one day and he asked his manager, could he log into the gamified portal to check his stats? So we see it's designed well that people will automatically want to go on to more and more. No, that's great. So it's not too much of a deviation from this, but you sort of touched on adoption a little bit. I wanted to ask about this and sort of in regards to the metaverse a bit. And you'd mentioned, you know, you worked in VR and you know, VR is furthest from being new, right? But actual adoption of it as it being a consumer product or a consumer experience has always been, you know, a slow trickle. So I'm curious, sort of twofold question of, you know, gamification or this, this idea, you know, the oversimplified idea of gamification being leaderboards and badges and sort of those lower hanging fruit have always seemed to sort of sputter a little bit similar to how VR may be sputtered when it was released in the 80s. I don't even know when, but how do you sort of see that trajectory of the metaverse as like an adoption and what challenges do you think are sort of in the way of this new sort of fuzzy space for everyone? Yeah, I think a lot of it is following where the money goes. So for gamification, one of the big reasons why people associate gamification design to just points back to leaderboard is because around 2010, a lot of startups, which are gamification platforms, they raised a lot of money from venture capitalists. 
and they start doing a bunch of marketing. And so they say, GameCase is great, buy our platform, buy our platform, and we give you points, badges, and leaderboards. So because of that strong push, people eventually think, oh yeah, we decided to buy GameCase and we got these points, badges, leaderboards. So eventually the term got connected to whoever had the most money to broadcast what they're doing. And what's funny is I do a lot of workshops. And when I do workshops, I often ask the group, like, think about one game you enjoyed playing in the past and tell me, why was that your favorite game? And till this day, I have not heard someone say, yeah, that was my favorite game because they gave me points or they gave me these badges or I was on a leaderboard. It's always about, oh, because I can use my strategy or I can play with my friends or my kids or wow, like the storytelling was amazing, right? It's always these components. And yet when companies feel like, hey, let's turn something more like a game, let's not use the things that people say they love about the games they play, but let's just add the additional ones. So my analogy I use is it's like first creating a game that's boring And then it's say, hey, if you play this boring game a thousand times, you'll get points and badges, which makes zero sense, right? No one's going to play that game. So that's the gamecation world. Now, in terms of the metaverse, I think it's the same thing. It's the organizations with money that could alter what it's going to become. And as you know, there are certain companies who change their names or one certain company to change their name to say, hey, we're serious about the metaverse, right? And this is something that a lot of people are kind of concerned about because people want the metaverse to be open and free and, and a lot of people want it to be decentralized. And so that vision of all these worlds being connected together and you know, digital, physical, and everything you do is no longer living in one single server and is no longer dropped or controlled by one company. I think that's the vision that a lot of people are excited about. And so it really depends on the future, how different types of organizations, whether it's nonprofit, whether it's like grassroots or single companies are saying, hey, we want to define the metaverse and this is what it is. I do think it's not going to be one company owning all of it, it's definitely going to be what some people call federations, you know, it's like passports, they'll have their rules, you have to pay money to go in or bring these things in or take these things out. But it could eventually be a bit like, let's say the browser, war, right? So technically, there's over a dozen browsers, but eventually it's one to two to three that's dominating. And actually, it's getting close, close to one that's dominating. Yeah, no, I'm torn where to ask you next. I have so many questions, but I think one of the things that I want to focus on, just pulling on one of the aspects of your response there is this paradox of games that are designed well. And you talk a lot about white hat versus black hat gamification and how some companies are really good game designers. You know, technically Zynga was masterful at keeping people coming back, but not necessarily helping them feel fulfilled. And, you know, applying this to the boring game of whatever you know app is trying to get gamified with boring results of points badges and leaderboards and you know and tying this all into this aspect of where is the metaverse going i like you spent too much time in college playing diablo 2 i'm not quite sure if i'm ready to like bring an avatar to work in like full butcher armor or whatever where if you can fully transport all of your achievements from any game to any platform anywhere else in the world so the possibilities are really endless here, but kind of focusing on good game design and the aspects that make gamification helpful. Where do you see maybe some areas of encouragement for those enterprise apps? I'm thinking like healthcare and fintech and some of the areas of product design where there's maybe the most resistance. What's an example that you can see as a way to introduce this concept in a way that's safe for people, for companies, for apps that may not necessarily gravitate towards these ideas easily. What's a way 
that you can start to introduce these elements. You know, there, there might be a UX designer or, or a product manager at a corporate setting right now who's like, this is great, sounds fun, but how do I apply this in my daily scrum standup where I'm working on a health insurance workflow? What do you say to that person? Yeah, so before I set people off into this wild world of gamification and examples, because there's thousands of examples and exploring that on their own, I do want to give people the compass. And the compass is, at least from my side end of things, the Octalysis framework and allows you to know what you're doing. So you mentioned white hat versus black hat design. And I'll also talk about the, what we call left brain versus right brain core drive. So white hat motivation are core drives one, two, three out of the eight. So that's epic meaning calling, development, accomplishment, empowerment of creative feedback. Those make people feel powerful in control. They feel good, but there's no sense of urgency. So people procrastinate. It's those things that if you do it, you feel happy, but you just never get to it because of all what we call black hat triggers, black hat motivations that are heading you. So the black hat motivation core drives are six, seven, and eight in the eight core drives. And there is scarcity and patience, unpredictable and curiosity and loss and avoidance. So those make people feel urgent, obsessed, even addicted. But in the long run, if that's the only motivator and makes people feel bad about themselves, it makes them feel like they're not in control of their own behavior. And if they can't escape, they will want to. So balancing the white hat versus black hat is very important. White hat is good for long-term community management, loyalty programs, employee motivation. Black hat is for one-time transactions. You just want people to give you their credit cards or donate money or you know, register for your app. So for instance, booking.com was a client of ours and booking.com is looking for a one-time transaction, right? They want to sell tickets. And so they have a lot of black hat designs such as, oh, there's only two tickets left and there's 10 people looking at it and you have eight seconds, not seven seconds, six, and you're like, oh, gotta buy, gotta buy. So you buy it, right? So you did the desired action and they made money, but you don't necessarily feel great about it. Now, the reason why booking.com can get away with it is because buying tickets is usually a low frequency transaction, even pre-COVID. And so most people don't buy it every week, right? So after four or five months, they want to buy their next ticket. They already forgot that bad feeling. And they're like, hey, I think last time I used booking, let me do it again. But if you're amazon.com, it's totally different, right? So Amazon wants people to buy 10 times a day. And I fully believe that if they use all of these black hat strategies booking.com is doing, people will not want to go on Amazon as much and they will suffer in their business metrics. So you'll see Amazon utilizes Core Drive 2 and 5, Development Accomplishment, Make People Feel Smart, and Core Drive 5, Social Influence and Relatedness. So it's all about, hey, I feel smart where I'm going. I know I can make decision confidence. I ordered, I could get in one or two days. I can return it very easily. The social norming, like I talked about, I know there's a lot of reviews. So they have to focus on the white hat strategy because they want people to do it very, very often. And this is important for product design, right? Sometimes a company will just copy what other companies are doing. It's like, oh, we're doing e-commerce. So let's copy what booking.com is doing. But they don't realize that frequency of transaction is one of the most important things to determine whether you can do black hat or not. And this is why a lot of companies copy another and then it fails. And then we talk about short bursts of activities that's still on the black hat zone. So if a company said, hey, let's have our employees do like a one week competition to see who's the best. It's really thrilling. It's really exciting. People's adrenalines are high. Like let's compete. Yay. Right. But if it's a year long competition, most people don't want to be in a constant state of competing with their colleagues or coworkers, and it creates this cut their environment. And some people might just burn out and leave. So short bursts, oh, it's okay. So that's white hat versus black hat. So whenever you're looking at game changing examples, or you're doing things on your own. You want to know, is it white hat or black hat? And what's especially dangerous is because these world where we talk a lot about data-driven design. And data-driven design sounds very sophisticated, intelligent, right? Hey, we don't know the answer, so we just look at the data. Whatever works, we'll do more of it. The problem is because black hat always creates urgency, whenever you pay too close of attention on the data, you're always going to do more black hat. Mm. So it's like, hey, look, we put a torture break on. A torture break is saying, hey, stop, you can't do it. You have to wait you know, six hours before you can do this again. Like People are coming back like every hour, every two hours, they're obsessed, and they're giving us a lot of money. Let's do more mm. of that. 
right? And so you'll see that the product experience becomes more and more and more black hat and people can burn out. I'm not saying you shouldn't look at the data. I'm saying that you should have that compensate. Yes, people are doing the behavior. That's good, but it's all black hat design. So how can we balance it? How can we bring more white hat design into it? Make people feel inspired, make them feel like they're making the world a better place. They're connecting a higher meaning or they're proving themselves or using creativity. Very, very important. And then we have the what we call left brain versus right brain core drives. But I've been going on a spiel, so I'll, I'll let you take the conversation somewhere or here up to you. Yeah, find the rest in the book. Definitely. <laughs> that was awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, you know, the framework itself is pretty fascinating. You mentioned you do workshops and we do a ton here as well. And, you know, a lot of it revolves around self-determination theory or, you know, various things around Abraham Maslow. So it's interesting to see how you sort of applied those to, I think, a more approachable way than some of these other authors have, have kind of captured this idea of human motivation. So to shift topics away from the framework, can you talk a little bit about Afkelis's Prime and what you're doing with mentorship and education? And, you know, I'm sure it draws on the framework, but I'm curious just, you know, for our listeners who may not know, you know, what is Prime all about and what are you passionate about with it? Yes. So Octalysis Prime is my gamified education platform. So it is my own software project that I launched and it's a passion project. So you know, it's like a download of my brain onto the island. I made over 900 videos on what we call the island because it's a gamified island. 900 videos on the island. The book that Paul you read is about three to 5% of the knowledge that's on the OP island. And so I started this for a few reasons. Number one, it's because there have been a lot of people who tell me, hey, Yukai, I read the book maybe two or three times. What's next? What's next? Right. So I wanted a more like an ongoing journey. Also, I felt kind of bored because it doesn't matter if I'm doing like a one hour speech or one week workshop or one month workshop. I always have to start at the very beginning, explain the basics again, like what's left brain core what's right brain core, what's white hat. And it feels like a game where every time you stop, you can't save it. You have to like start from stage one again. So I wanted this ongoing journey that people could be in. Also, I wanted to express my own creativity. So a lot of times when I design something for clients, what actually comes out would oftentimes be very different to what I design for whatever reason, right? So I just wanted to have my own vision come out and also connect with people that I want to connect. And so it's a platform where you go around and you watch these videos, but then you level up and gain different power-ups. So you can watch videos, you can capture what we call geomons and take quizzes and all these things. And every activity you do, corresponds to some of those A-core drives. And these A-core drives will give you different power-ups based on them. So for instance, ownership and possession will give you a power-up that allows you to get more coins when you open the treasure chest. But unpredictable curiosity allows you to open treasure chests more often. So these are synergetic. Some of them are mentorship. You now you can mentor other members on the island. Uh, and so that's the game side. That's the fun part, right? But there's actual results. So my own company, does the design and consulting company, Arcalysis Group, seven out of the eight people we hired in the past two years came out of OP. And it's not like we purposely recruit from OP. How we recruit is we create design challenges. We're like, hey, how would you redesign eBay? Or how would you redesign this? And people submit you know, 30, 40 pages of their design documents. It just ends up being OP members are the best trained. Yeah. So that's in a big nutshell what the Octos platform is. And I'm very passionate about it. You can see. I love it. We're just about out of time here and I could ask questions for another hour. I've, I've literally been looking forward to talking to you for months. Just to kind of close it up, maybe to point people to where they can learn more. We've talked about Octalysis Prime, we've talked about the book. What are some other things that are going on that you think if people are still unaware of, you know, gamification is more than PBLs and there are ways to bring play and gameful elements into their products. Who are some people in the space 
that you'd recommend people look to? And what are some things that are inspiring you these days that you think are moving the ball forward in this concept of gamification and human-centered design? Yeah, I think it's important to find people who know what they're doing because I've seen people who just took a one-day workshop and they start selling gamification services, which I don't think it's that legit. I'd say Jane McGonigal, she has two really good books. It's super better. That's her second book and reality is broken. She has inspired a lot of people to start you know, exploring their skills in within gamification. And then there's also Sebastian Dieterding, I think is how you pronounce it, but Dieterding is how you would want to spell it. He's very precise in his statements. His, his more is on the academic side. He has a UX background and his work is a bit more dense. It feels very academic, but if you consume his stuff, I think you will get better and smarter in terms of how you design things. I love it. Yukai, your work has actually helped me over the years. I do spend a lot of time still playing video games and just understanding how things motivate and what loops are in systems. I still find myself immersed in the elements even though I'm self-aware of what's going on at the motivation level. So there's definitely an appreciation that I have for really well-designed games because of you know what you've been able to, to pull together from a lot of motivation frameworks that have come before Octalysis. It's just so approachable. I learned a ton just talking to you today. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Very glad to be here. Awesome. Cheers. Cheers to you. Well, that's it for today. In line with our goals of transparency and listening, we really want to hear from you. Sean and I are committed to reading every piece of feedback that we get, so please leave a comment or a rating wherever you're listening to this podcast. Not only does it help us continue to improve, but it also helps the show climb up the rankings so that we can help other listeners move, touch, and inspire the world just like you're doing. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next episode. Mm-hmm.